Okay, now a few major points that we can take from this passage from Genesis 39. One, we saw very clearly that the Lord was with Joseph. It says that in verses 2 and 3 that the Lord was with him and also in verse 21 and in verse 23. 2, 3, 21 and 23. God was with Joseph in the midst of suffering, in the midst of evil uh, perpetrated by unbelievers or even the flesh, even if they were believers, like in the case of his brothers or whoever. That is, evil is committed against Joseph, yet God is with Joseph. God is with him in the midst of evil. Joseph understands this very point, for he says so in Genesis 45. Genesis 45. When his brothers come to see him, when they meet him, Genesis 45, verse 5, he says the following. Genesis 45, 5. And now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He comforts them. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's not denying the fact that they did an evil, that they sold him. But now it's time to understand God's purpose and understand what you need to do and what I am doing and what God's doing. God sent me before you to preserve life. And then in verse 6, and for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve life for you, a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Verse 9, God made me Lord of all Egypt. You see the relationship. They did evil, but God uses man's evil for his good. Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. He clearly tells them, you meant evil, but God used your evil for his good to make him the Lord of the land and to preserve many people alive. That's what happened because God took evil and made good come out of it. This happened with our Lord in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. 2.22 to 24. Acts 2, 22 to 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Who did the evil? 
You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They did evil against Christ. But God used their evil to accomplish not just a mere crucifixion, but an atonement in that crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. His resurrection, which will also be our resurrection. That's what God did to use the evil of men to bring about good. This is what God always does. Romans 8, 28. God does this even with us. Not not only Joseph, not only Christ, but also us. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Right there. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. If the purpose is good to those who love God, which is all of us, verses 29 and 30, the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, the glorified, verses 29 and 30, he's talking about the redeemed, the church, the elect in this passage. If all things work together for our good, that must mean that everything that's happening is not necessarily good. Not good. All things work together for good. Because if everything is good in the all things, then he wouldn't have to tell us they're going to work together for good. Because they're already good. By all things, he means evil things. Bad things. Harmful things. Persecutions, sufferings, afflictions, hardships, dilemmas, sleepless nights. Right? This is what he means by all things. Which things... He says in verses 35 to 39, he tells us what the all things are. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What happened to Joseph and Jesus also happens to us. God uses them for our good, like he did in their case. He does in our case. Another matter that we should consider here has to do with Joseph and his age. Joseph as a youth, as a young man. He was a young man, and this is generally more true of young men than women, young women, though it's not absent in young women, it's more true in young men. Their desires for sexual intercourse is very strong at that age. Right? It's universally the case, with very few exceptions. It's very strong at that age. How was it that Joseph was able to withstand such temptations? This is a woman who is basically putting herself on his lap. She's practically doing that, and he's resisting that. How was he able to do it? He's a young man. Remember, this happens between the age of 17 and 30. In that time period, 
between the age of 17 and age 30. She does that to him. He would have this ability for at least three reasons. One, he understands evil. Two, he understands the fear of God. Three, he has the spirit of God. Well, and four. Four would be he knows the word of God. He knows God's will. He has God's spirit. He understands the fear of God. And he understands the nature of evil. He has all those in his mind. That's how he's able to withstand this temptation. He says so, does he not, in verse 9? How could I do this great evil and sin against God? He kept sin against God as the reason set before him. Is this not what David said in Psalm 51.4? Against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. Psalm 51, verse 4. Even when he was confronted about that evil by Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, 13, when Nathan the prophet confronted David on his sexual sin, murder, deception, when he did that, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He said that. I have sinned against the Lord. He understood that his sin was an evil against God and primarily against God. Yes, against himself. Yes, against others. But primarily, it was an affront to God. Further, in reference to this fear, fear of God. This is what Joseph had. And this is what all the saints have. Amen. The fear of God. If there is no fear of God, then there is no faith in God. Right. No fear of God means no faith in God. It's characteristic of the church to have the fear of God. We see this in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. 9.31. Acts 9.31. The church generally must have the fear of God. 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. They have the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. No fear of God, no faith in God. That's the truth of Scripture. Jesus taught us to fear God and his punishment. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is wrongfully portrayed as so sappy and sugary that he would never say any strong word against us or never even punish us or judge us. He is not that way. Amen. This same Jesus in Matthew 10, 28 said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Our Lord Jesus said those words. We ought to fear God, and that would be a characteristic of a true believer. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, also written to the church and teaching us to fear God and never turn away from Him. 
Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's teaching us to fear God because he says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do not sin, but fear God. Fear what he might do to punish our sins. Uh, Further, in reference to Joseph, Joseph was a young man and People sometimes think that Joseph had a unique ability. Joseph was different. Joseph is not like me. That's not true. The Bible gives us not only Joseph, but other examples of young men who are able to live a godly life, who are encouraged to live a godly life. Remember our reading of Psalm 119? Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. How can a young man keep his way pure? Keep it according to God's word. This is written by David. So David is teaching this, which means also it was possible for David and possible for those whom he's instructing. In David's time, under the law of Moses, in that period, but also even now. Aren't the Psalms applicable today? Psalms and Proverbs? Aren't they applicable? They are applicable. Therefore, this applies also to us. Keep it according to his word. Our whole heart must be devoted to seeking God, and we must treasure his word in our heart. Treasure... That means we have to take it as a precious value. And further, he says, he declares his ordinances. He rejoices in his testimonies as much as in all riches. This is the attitude, a delightful rejoicing attitude, a meditative attitude towards the word that reminds us, instructs us, strengthens us to do God's will, his word. But also, he had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which we also have. We have the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and who empowers us to live a godly life. How do we know he had the Holy Spirit? 
In John chapter 3, when Jesus dialogued with Nicodemus, when he told him about his need to be born again of the Spirit, and Nicodemus didn't understand it, Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You, the teacher of Israel, should know that one is, has to be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. That means that Nicodemus, on the basis of the Old Testament, should have known how to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, which is what Joseph would have had. He would have been born of the Spirit. That's in John 3, before Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Jesus confronted Nicodemus that way. John 3, 1 to 21. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit would have been in Joseph to indwell him so that the Spirit might empower him. How do we know that? We also have another verse that's before Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, before it, in Luke 11, 13. In Luke 11, 13, Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Give the Holy Spirit, why? For our redemption and also our sanctification. We need the Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us to live a godly life. So Joseph had all of these in his life. Not only Joseph, though. Do we, we remember that Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 3, that Samuel was a boy when he went to the temple or when he went to the tabernacle? When he went to the, and he was one who received the word of God, he was set apart as a prophet of God, and he cannot be a true prophet of God unless he is regenerated and godly. No doubt. Correct? Samuel the prophet, 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 3. How about Josiah? Remember King Josiah? 2 Chronicles 35 and 36. 2 Chronicles chapters 35, actually 34 and 35. 2 Chronicles chapters 34 and 35. In 34, let's read a couple of verses there. In 2 Chronicles 34, notice how young it says Josiah was. Not only when he became king, but when he sought the Lord with zeal. How old was King Josiah? 2 Chronicles 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. And they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. 
and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, in their surrounding ruins. He also tore down the altars and beat the Asherim and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Let's do some addition here. He's eight years old when he becomes king. Verse 1. In the eighth year of his reign, that means he's 16 years old, right? He begins to seek the God of his father, David. He's seeking God at age 16. Then four years later, at age 20, he carries out this great purge of not only Judah, where he is king, but he even goes into enemy territory because the Assyrians control the north now. He goes into the enemy territory in the tribes of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, Naphtali to tear down their idols. He goes there and does so. He's only 20 years old and he's doing this kind of work. And it's even before the discovery of the original law of Moses in the temple. Because then verses 8 and following describe that. So that happened in the 18th year of his reign when the law of Moses was discovered in the temple. And even after that, he carries out more reforms. He repents. He calls on all the people to repent and carries out those reforms. So that's the 18th year after the law of Moses was discovered, the original law of Moses, which means what? 8 plus 18. He's only 26 years old, and he's still this faithful to God. In his youth. Josiah was that way. Yet these are not the only examples. We have others in Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4, 12. 1 Timothy 4, 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. We don't know Timothy's exact age, but he is, relatively speaking, a youth. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Youthfulness in and of itself is not a pretext for wickedness. People often excuse youthfulness as a pretext for wickedness. Well, he's just young. He doesn't know any better. What do you mean he doesn't know any better? He's young. Even if he's five years old, he knows better than to punch his brother in the face. What do you mean he doesn't know any better? He knows better. Correct? Or even if he's 20 years old, he knows better than to fornicate. No doubt. Right? He knows better. People know better. That, And so... What is it that we should be seeking? See the way they live, as he says there in 1 Timothy 4, 12. Even Titus. Titus was a young pastor as well. People notice Timothy, but they um, don't notice Titus. Titus 2. Titus 2, 6 to 8. Titus 2, 6 to 8. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, 
with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. He urges the young men, he urges Titus to teach the young men, Titus the pastor, a young pastor to teach the young men to be this way. We see evidence of Titus' youth in verse 7. In all things show yourself. That's where the apostle put Titus in the category of the young men. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds in this category or section of the young men. So, this is expected of the young pastors and it's expected of them to teach their people in their churches to be the same, to be godly and don't use youth as an excuse for wicked behavior. Another matter we see in reference to Joseph has to do with his appearance. We said that Joseph did not exploit his appearance. He did not use his appearance for evil. His appearance, the gift of God, became a source of his temptation. The gift of God became to Joseph a source of temptation. Not his temptation uh, in that he wanted to do something, but the woman, the wife, wanting to tempt him to sin. So he was put in a predicament that way. But he didn't use it for sin. But many times it is used for sin. Beauty is often used for sin, both men and women alike. Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11, 22. Proverbs 11, 22 teaches us not to use the gift of God to sin. 11.22 As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. A beautiful woman who lacks discretion, lacks discernment, wisdom, understanding, godliness, is just like putting a ring of gold in the nose of a pig. Rings of gold don't belong on noses of pigs. Just like beautiful women should not practice sin. They should not do so. Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3. 16. Isaiah 3. 16 to 26. Isaiah 3.16 Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud. Who are they? The daughters of Zion. Because they are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. And the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, 
cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now, it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted, she will sit on the ground. First Timothy 2. First Timothy 2, 9 to 15. First Timothy 2, 9 to 15. We cannot use too many Old Testament references, otherwise the fault finders say, that's in the Old Testament, it doesn't apply. So we have to give at least one, there are many more, but at least one New Testament reference. 1 Timothy 2, 9. 1 Timothy 2, 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold, or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The apostle teaches the same. Don't use your beauty, don't flaunt your beauty and exploit it. Have this modest and discreet way of living and may your good deeds, may your godliness be that which clothes you. May that be what clothes you. And then we have the issue in verse 10, Genesis 39, 10. And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day, that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. We've got a couple of things on this matter here on, in verse 10. One, she nags him. And then two, his approach to it. So first, on the nagging part, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 21, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9, Proverbs 21, 9, it is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman, 21, 9, 21, 19, It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. 21, 19. 25, 24. 25, 24. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. 25, 24. And 27, 15 and 16. 27, 15, and 16. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman 
are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. In the verses we've just read, he's telling us it's better to be separated far away from this contentious, vexing woman, the nagging woman. It's better to be separated. And it's like a constant dripping on a day of steady rain. When you see the water drop and drip and drop and drip, that's the way a contentious woman is and should not be. Further, it is nearly impossible to stop her. It says, or it is impossible, verse 16. He who would restrain her restrains the wind. Have you ever restrained the wind? You can't restrain the wind completely. You can partially, such as you might be able to stand in front of somebody else who gets less of the wind than you do, something like that. You might be able to do it barely, but not very much. And the same thing with grasping oil with your right hand. Your strong hand is usually the right hand. You try to grab oil, all the oil is going to just slip out of your hand, right? Just a little bit will be left as a residue on your hand, but otherwise it's all going to slip away. It's hard to control the wind and the oil. The same with this. So it's certainly teaching us in Genesis 39 and in Proverbs that that should not happen. That is wrong and it's evil. But what did Joseph do? He tried to avoid her. Avoid that because he couldn't stop it, so he avoided her. Is it wrong, therefore, is it wrong to avoid sin? Is it wrong to avoid the occasions of sin? Is it wrong to avoid the places of sin? Is it wrong to avoid the circumstances of sin? Is it sinful? Is it a sign of weakness when we attempt to avoid those occasions of sin? Is it wrong to do so? Is it a sign of our weakness, lack of faith, lack of spiritual strength, when we don't go where the sin takes place? Is it a sin? Joseph avoided it as much as he could. Right? Was Joseph sinning? No, he was not sinning. In fact, if you still have Proverbs open, Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, 14 and 15. Proverbs 4, 14 and 15. 4, 14. He's talking about the occasions or places of sin. And what does he say? 4, 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. Does he not say, get out of it? Get out of that situation? Don't even be close to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. If we are in bad company, they will inevitably corrupt us. 
Because the flesh is weak. We are weak, naturally speaking. And an evidence of spiritual strength is that we realize how weak we are and walk away from it, run away from it, flee from youthful lusts. Is that not what the apostle told Timothy, the young pastor? 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So then, if we flee the company of the wicked, we ought to attach ourselves in the company, with the company of the pure of heart, with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Those are the people we should be around, away from the wicked and with the righteous. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13, verse 20. So, Joseph did what was right. He avoided evil. Let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.